Hello and welcome to episode 70 of the Let's Talk Thyroid podcast. Today I'm chatting with general practitioner Dr. Anna Ord all about how to understand your own blood tests. Now, I don't know about you, but it's taken me a long time to be able to look at my blood tests and make sense of them. Understanding our own thyroid blood tests can be complicated. Uh, we've got to understand what the tests are, whether there was the full array of tests that probably should be ordered in a thyroid test, has been ordered. What's the difference between optimal range and normal range? What happens if you're in range, but you still feel hypothyroid symptoms? These are all the questions that I'm exploring with Dr. Ord today. Let me tell you a little bit more about her and we'll dive right into the episode. So Dr. Anna Ord is a general practitioner. Uh, she is from Poland. She did her specialty training in the United Kingdom, but she's been living in Perth, Australia uh, since 2017. She um, was actually diagnosed with Hashimoto's four years ago, and that helped her to really look at managing thyroid health as a doctor from a very different perspective. She started to do a whole lot of reading and research. She did additional training with the Australian College of Nutritional and Environmental Medicine so she could be better equipped to help her patients and herself manage auto, her thyroid autoimmune condition um, you know, on that day-to-day -day basis. So she's really upskilled her medical practice and she, uh, you know, I think it's really helped her to understand how to treat thyroid conditions in a way that isn't normally taught in medical school. So sit back, enjoy. You might want to actually pull out your last couple of blood tests and look at the numbers as she's talking and explaining them. That might uh, actually just be a really helpful practical thing you can do to cement in the knowledge that she's sharing and how that pertains to you. Hello, hello. You are about to listen to the Let's Talk Thyroid podcast. My name is Annabelle Bateman. I am your host. And together we are going to explore what it means to live a thyroid-friendly lifestyle. On this show, we cover many different aspects of that thyroid-friendly lifestyle and we try to do it positively and practically to give you information and tools and strategies that you can actually implement in your day-to-day -day life. So I really hope you enjoy the show. If you do, if you wouldn't mind hitting that follow button on whatever platform you're listening on, that would be really helpful. And if you want to connect with me, the best way to do that is through my website, which is annabellebateman.com. The information presented and discussed in this podcast is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease and should not be used as a substitute for proper advice from a qualified professional. Well, welcome Dr. Anna Ord to the Let's Talk Thyroid podcast. This is fun to have uh, another, well, I know you're based in Australia, uh, person on the podcast and all the way from Western Australia. So welcome. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me, Annabelle. It's a, it's a real pleasure. Yeah, it's going to be fun. We've had a bit of a chat last week. Uh, so we're going to be diving all into helping people understand their thyroid blood tests because you are a doctor. Uh, and, you know, I think it's a really common question that people ask. We're not really very good at understanding what tests to ask for or then how to interpret them, read them, what to do with them. So that's what we're really going to dive into. Uh, but first, I'm just wondering, can you just explain a little bit about, you know, who you are, what you do, uh, and, you know, what's led you to be interested in thyroid health? Mm -hmm. Okay, so my name is Anna Ord, as uh, you've kind of introduced me. Um, I'm a general practitioner with just over 10 years experience as a GP, 
graduated in Poland all the way back in 2006, moved over to UK, did my um, internship and my um, specialty training in general practice and worked full-time, moved over to Australia in 2017 and still working full-time as a, as a general practitioner. Um, in terms of what uh, made me look more into the, the thyroid conditions, especially Hashimoto's thyroiditis, is as it usually is my, my personal journey. Um, so that all started probably about four and a half, five years ago um, when I got diagnosed with Hashimoto's thyroiditis and that sort of sparked my interest to look into much more um, deeper in what, you know, what we taught in, in, in medical school or, you know, do, during the GP um, training. So, so that was that. Yeah, as it often is, isn't it? It's our personal issues that causes to dive deep in because I guess as a general practitioner you've got to be across a very broad range of health issues you know so whatever walks in your door could be all sorts of different things so you've got to know a little bit or you know about a whole lot of things is that right very very right (laughs) that's correct yeah yeah (laughs) which maybe does that I mean we maybe we'll cover this a little bit but is that why often as thyroid patients typical thyroid patients going to see their kind of typical general practitioner can get a bit stuck because that practitioner is kind of good at a broad range of things but maybe doesn't know a whole lot about thyroid health would that be fair I I think so and you know when you have in mind what is actually taught in uh, medical school or you know doing the GP training is very much all right so your thyroid is underactive you need some thyroxine there's your thyroxine off you go Um, or your thyroid is overactive well that's a bit more complex you've got to see an endocrinologist off you go (laughs) so um that's what we told that's pretty much how i started with myself when when i uh, you know got into um when i when i um, got first diagnosed so that was my approach to myself (laughs) Mm. which is very different uh to what i what i do now so it was definitely a journey um and i'm and i'm hoping and i know that my my patients have benefited from me gaining that extra knowledge yeah i'll bet (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah, so do you mind me asking a couple of questions about your thyroid story first before we kind of really dive into the meat? Because I think it does give some context to you know to you and your experience as a doctor, and gives you that extra depth of uh, what's what am I looking for? Well, I guess compassion would be one thing, but you know, actually, ability to treat your thyroid patients well. And I'm sure you have a broad like you're in a general practice still, aren't you? You're not just treating thyroid patients. Everything. <laughs> So what made you think you had a thyroid, might have had a thyroid problem in the first place? How did that play out for you? So basically, um, about four and a half, five years ago, um, what I've noticed was something, I guess, a bit less usual, and I don't really hear that very often from my patients, um, is that I had this ache uh, in my actual thyroid. Um, yeah, you don't, you don't hear about it very, very much. It's not a typical um, Hashimoto's thing. Um, and I, I knew that this was an area of my thyroid, so I had a, you know, a little prod to make sure that there was no major lumps and I haven't discovered anything. Um, so I decided to um, organize, get some, get some basic bloods done, and, and there it was, my, my basic thyroid functions. Um, and they came back perfectly normal. <laughs> so yes. Uh, yes um so to which i 
try to convince myself, well, look, this is not your thyroid. Exactly as I would say to my patient, look, it's not thyroid. Um, but then it was still happening and it would come and go. It's just a strange sensation. Um, so I decided, well, maybe I should look in, into it in a little bit more of a detailed way. So I got some antibodies done and, and there they were. There they were sky high. So, um, so that's how it started. And I wish I could say that from day one, I'm like, right, yes, I'm straight on to it. Uh, it didn't happen that way. Uh, mm-hmm. And it took me some time to sort of look into, you know, wh- where can I get any more information? Because if I followed my, um, you know, what I was um, told in, in medical school, it would be like, well, nothing much you can do. You can just sit and wait. And then when your thyroid is actually under functioning, then we stick you on some um, thyroxine and that's pretty much it. And I didn't like the idea of that. So um, I decided to, you know, I broaden my knowledge in this subject. And so what, so you sort of did what the typical thyroid patient does <laughs> is, well, hold on either, or I've done what the doctors said and I'm not feeling better, or maybe you even knew preemptively, well, my thyroid function's still okay, but I know the thyroid antibodies are not, what else can I do? So where did you go? So I basically um, had a look at the extra training for doctors, for medical professionals, and that's how I discovered ACNEM, which is the Australasian College of the Nutritional and Environmental Medicine. And they had all sorts of different courses. One of them was the thyroid one, but I had to do all the sort of foundational um, training. And it was a mind-blowing experience. Um, And I feel like when you discovered all that stuff, you, you just cannot go back it's not possible (laughs) you can't unknow (laughs) absolutely absolutely so it it certainly affected my day-to-day practice in not just thyroid patients but anything else that's 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 there that i deal with so you went looking for what other training medical training can i do as a doctor to understand my my thyroid and how to treat thyroid health better that's correct yes well which i guess makes sense as a doctor to go looking for that whereas you know as the standard patient, we just go Googling and <laughs> get lost in a sea of internet, <laughs> some good, some bad, you know, and begin wading through that. So, so that course, uh, tell us a little bit more about that training. So it's an interesting thing because obviously I was very, very much mainstream doctor, as, as mentioned before. Um, for example, moving to Australia and discovering that you've got, for example, natural parts, I wasn't familiar with this concept, so I wasn't really sure what what was all that about? And a lot of, for example, training for uh, at Acnem is delivered by experienced naturopaths, you know, and so so that was definitely an eye open and 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 very interesting uh, experience. And I feel like they've got all the knowledge that we don't necessarily um, come across, you know, um, during our our training. Um, so so it wasn't just sort of medical doctors that were delivering the. Um, the training, but you, you you get people who have the expertise in in the natural. Yeah. So, it, are there no no naturopaths in Poland? You see, I never worked in Poland as a doctor. But oh, so you did your training there, but then did the rest in the UK. Yeah, and uh, so UK not have naturopaths. No, no, it's not oh. something that you. Um, that you know, people, people, you know, it's it's a it's a um, it's a common thing in in Australia. You don't get your answers from your GP, so you go to naturopath and hope that they will 
um, look a bit more holistically. And no, it, it was a it was a new concept for me um, altogether. Yeah. And I have to say, I was a bit skeptical at first, thinking, hmm, "What do they know?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that, that that's I would expect that's a, a common reaction. It actually, and I think as I talk to people from all around the world, well, mostly UK, America, Australia, some of the sort of terminology of qualifications, they're not all interchangeable. I think I'm working out that what we call a naturopath may be called a functional medicine practitioner in the States and a nutritionist perhaps. I know we have nutritionists here too. So it is interesting in that holistic health space across the world, there's, I'm sure there's a lot of overlap, but they're kind of often called slightly different things. Yes, yes, yes. Um, yeah, but still, very new concept for me. And uh... Yeah. So what did you discover in terms of beyond what you were taught as a general practitioner about how to treat thyroid? What, what did you discover either worked for you or just works often for other people in terms of managing thyroid health more broadly than just the hormonal replacement so so to me the the whole game changer was to actually appreciate that it is an autoimmune condition and there is certain things you can do to affect that to reduce that um sort of inflammation in the body um i mean i didn't go sort of overly drastic in terms of you know you you hear that people go to extremes in terms of you know cutting things out of the diet um in terms of what works for me um and again, it didn't happen overnight. It was more of a process um, and sort of um, trial and error. Um, first of all, I decided to sort of tackle my um, ever-increasing weight and decided that, well, that, that's, that's a big deal here. And it's a bit of a double-edged sword um, because not only the thyroid condition makes you gain weight, but then that um, um, increased weight affects your hormonal balance as well so the way i approached it i i started regularly um exercise because you know I, over the years i would try and i would fall off the wagon you know you get a cold you get tired you stop it and so i decided to just be consistent with it so what what worked for me was to do it first thing in the morning um my little thing is i um have a treadmill and i um, run whilst watching a Netflix show. Um, yeah. <laughs> I choose interesting, inspiring things rather than you know daunting or scary things. Something that fuels me, you know, with a with a positive energy for the day. Mm -hmm. And I stop uh, watching when I stop exercising, and therefore I look forward to whatever happens in the next episode and next thing. And I do it before my family is up um, to get it out of the way. I, I don't even think about it. I don't plan it apart from maybe having my, my shoes and my, my sort of um, basic outfit ready the night before. So it just happens. It's a habit. I get on and I do it. And that had a massive effect on A, my general energy level and just obviously weight, weight itself. So that was a major thing, and just 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 um, creating that habit. It wasn't easy, uh, but you know, it did finally happen for me with just being more and more consistent. So that was my, you know, definitely something that massively changed um, how I felt. In terms of the diet itself, um, obviously we know that dairy is a uh, um, is it does fuel the autoimmunity, can fuel autoimmunity. 
we're probably the only sort of species that has milk in adulthood. I'm not necessarily very opposed to dairy, and I think everybody should sort of make their own mind about it in terms of how it affects their bodies. But I have reduced um, greatly my intake of milk, so I, I swapped the, the type of milk I would have in the, my teas and coffees. Um, I don't, I'm not really much of a yogurt eater, but um, I would have a coconut yogurt if I did have yogurt. And I would still have occasional cheese and, you know, still enjoy my bar of chocolate. I do feel like I, I pay for it because um, I tend to get more headaches if I um, mm. overdo on the sort of um, chocolate side of things. And then, you you know, you're looking at things like gluten and I haven't completely cut out gluten. I think it's very important that when you, that you, when you first get diagnosed with um, autoimmune thyroid condition that you do get screened for celiac because there is a big overlap um, in terms of the um, autoimmune thyroid conditions and the incidence of, of, of celiac antibodies. Obviously, it's not a yes or no answer. It's, it's a bit of a screening tool, what, what we have an access to as, as GPs. Um, but if you're not, I guess, listening to your body as well. Um, and for me, the thing was, you know, when I was, when I used to just rush fasting in the morning without the exercise and just grabbing, a, you know, a, a, a quick piece of toast with marmalade, you know, and the bread would be from supermarket or, you know, one of the big chains. I swapped that into, um, I'm lucky enough to have a little bakery on a doorstep and they really pride themselves in the, into, you know, that they do their sourdough properly and, um, uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. And so I'll have my slice of rice sourdough with, um, you know, a couple of eggs and and some uh, massive big salad um, in the morning, and I felt that I, I feel much better off it. Have you ever noticed, actually, Annabelle, when you when you when you get the bread from the supermarket, you know, and you and you try to cut the crust off for your child, and you put the two slices together and you press it against each other, um, it just turns into dough again. It's not even. A, it's like I know. Um, you know, like we don't, you know, gluten is one thing, but what other stuff do they add to the bread? I know. I often think of it. I mean, I don't. I know. I still buy bread for my family, but I don't eat it at all. I mean, I'll have. I found a really nice paleo bread that I will have my eggs on for breakfast. But yeah, I know when you get it, it's like glue. I just think of glue as glu- gluten as glue, and I know it's not that's oversimplified. But I think who wants to eat glue? And like you feel that bread, and you think, Ugh. there's very off, very few times now that bread or cakes or biscuits are a real temptation for me like I think I've really it's been a number of years so I'm talking I haven't eaten gluten for 10 years so it's pretty rare that I will look at a piece of bread now and think oh I wish I could eat that a nice sourdough much more tempting but yeah you're right that supermarket bread and think oh this is so overprocessed. so maybe just having less of it you know if you really do enjoy it and you feel like it doesn't really affect you in any ways um, and you don't have celiac and all that. Um, I mean, you know, it's worth considering doing a bit of a trial period without, um, in terms of, you know, milk and, uh, and so dairy mm. and, and, and gluten. And I guess it's important to mention here in terms of the whole lactose thing, because people sometimes go, oh, well, so I thought I'm feeling unwell because um, when I have milk, um, you know, I'm bloated, whatever. And so I decided to swap into a lactose milk and I'm still not much better. So I know it's not milk. Well, 
um, we know it's not lactose, but you still get the, the dairy protein in your in your lactose-free milk. So it doesn't really exclude that you do have a problem with, with milk itself. So um, so yes, uh, so those kind of things, they they the sort of basics that you, you consider at the beginning, I guess. Of, of, of Yeah. So making some dietary changes, bringing in some exercise has been helpful for you. I mean, being a doctor is a busy, stressful job, I expect, as managing stress as I can. Is that... Does that seem to impact your thyroid, like that sort of day-to-day stress? Have you found that? Massively. And I think what I decided to do, and we obviously know sleep, massively important. You need to have your your, your sleep. Uh, but I actually found that being up early in the morning um, and still allowing the, you know, the, the, the good number of hours in terms of sleep, but being up early in the morning so I can actually sort of you know, ease into my day rather than just rush, rush, rush. Um, Ah, Okay, so that gives you a bit of time to set up for the day, even though you're getting up earlier rather than getting up with the rest of the family and it's just a bit more. So even those, you know, five minutes of meditation a day, I do more than that, but, you know, a starting point is is definitely worth considering in terms of the, 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 the stress management and the, the, the considering the, the effect of the stress on the on the autoimmunity um, as such. Mm, mm. Yeah. Yeah. It's something we often end up talking about on this podcast is stress and the impact that that has and how, how do you manage it? And that's a whole nother topic. <laughs> is that, before we launch into talking about the blood tests, is there anything, you know, that you find you're saying typically to your thyroid patients, like, you know, any sort of top tips or things that you think really, you know, someone's just listening and they're right at the beginning of their thyroid journey. Maybe they're just been diagnosed with some, with hypothyroidism or Hashimoto's, or they're just even still investigating. Is there something that you say, say to your patients, this is a, a must do, or a, you know, really make sure you explore this or like, is there any sort of top? We sort of covered it in, in now. I think it, the, the main thing is to just make them aware that it is an autoimmune thyroid condition because you know, you speak to people who have been diagnosed with an um, underactive thyroid, you know, many, many years ago, and nobody actually make them aware that the, you know, the whole culprit of this was an autoimmune condition. Um, and it does um, help people understand that, you know, your bloods may be looking sort of normal on the surface and you may still be unwell because it's an autoimmune condition. So if you address some of those um, issues that are fueling the, the autoimmunity, you, that's when you may um, feel better. And, you know, I think it's very similar to sort of managing any other chronic illness, isn't it? Like when you look at the basics, the sleep, the food, the, you know, that we eat, the, uh, the stress management, so many different chronic conditions are you know, would benefit benefit from those basic changes. Um, yeah. Yeah, I've had a few people like um, with my new book that I've put out and it's really all about the lifestyle, diet and lifestyle factors that we can do to address the autoimmunity. And I've had a few, I've got a friend in New Zealand who's got MS. She doesn't have thyroid problems, but she's got MS. And she's like, this is exactly what I, you know, kind of what she already does. She's already on that path, but she said, this just applies to me as well. And, you know, that, as you say, with chronic health issues, stress, inflammation, so all those things help. 
Interrupting for a sec, uh, just to give a shout out to my book, Let's Talk Thyroid. It's really written in a way to be very practical. It's very positive. Uh, if, if you flick through the inside of it, you know, you'll see diagrams and checklists, short paragraphs, lots of really easy to digest information and very practical. It's one you can dip in and dip out of depending on the aspect of thyroid health that you're working on. So you can grab it via Amazon or directly from my website, Annabelle Bateman. But I think that leads probably really nicely into the blood test question, Anna, because so many people don't know that they've got, if they've got an autoimmune component to their thyroid problem. So what blood tests should be being performed to diagnose a thyroid condition? Okay. So, um, you always start with the, the TSH, which is the thyroid stimulating hormone. So that's the hormone that's being produced by our brain, by our pituitary gland, that is actually telling the, the thyroid gland to do its job. Okay. So we're looking at um, the levels of this, of this hormone, the TSH, and there is a controversy there straight away because the, the range tends to be quite broad. Um, and for example, in Australia, you know, anything between 0.4 um, milli international units per liter up to 4 uh, milli international units per liter is considered normal. And I like to look at it and see whether it's in a, what we call optimal range. And an optimal range for the TSH, I would consider to be somewhere between 1 and 2 um, international units per mm-hmm. liter for a non-pregnant adult person and if it's outside of that range I sort of tend to think well what's going on um, mm-hmm. and and look how patient presents with that so definitely TSH and Medicare is fairly okay and happy for us to organize this as a um, as a Medicare funded um, test so if we have if our clinical judgment makes us suspect that this person may have a thyroid condition we can check the TSH uh, with no problem. Now, it doesn't really give us the full picture of the um, the thyroid health. It only tells us uh, what the brain is producing and the rest we just have to sort of make up ourselves. So there we have the actual thyroid hormones that we can check as well. Um, and we're looking at the storage form, which is the T4. And then we're looking at the active form, which is the T3. And again, in terms of even checking it, accessing it through through Medicare, you kind of have to sort of justify yourself. So if somebody's on thyroid hormones and we're monitoring it, we, we can check it. But for somebody who we're just screening, um, there may be a problem organizing straight away TSH and the T3 and T4, um, because if the TSH is in a normal range, um, you really have to justify um, organizing the actual um, thyroid hormones. Um, and so going to more details in terms of the T3 and T4, um, again, there is the, the normal range and then what we would hope for, the sort of more of an optimal range. Um, and then there is the ratio between them that you look at, uh, and that's an important um, information for me. So for example, the T4, Again, different labs and in different countries may have different reference ranges. But what I sort of normally come across is the T4 between 9 and 19 uh, picomol per litre is considered normal. 
Um, I would like it normally a little bit tighter, somewhere between 14 and 18, I would be happy with. So at the top end of that range sort of is more optimal. And can I just ask, when you're talking about T4 and T3, is that different? Well, I know there's a diff. there's the free T3 and free, I can never even say it, free T4 and free T3. And then I think it's, is it total T3 and T4? Um, yes, the problem, the slight problem with the free T3 is that it apparently takes into consideration some of the reverse um, T3 as well. Um, if you've got someone going to their doctor and say, I want the full flower panel, <laughs> are they, what are they actually asking for? Is you just basically get the, the sort of total T3 and T4 and that's, that's pretty standard, but you have to sort of, again, justify yourself to Medicare why you're requesting this. And in terms of the levels of the T3 that we're happy with, it's about, again, looking at the ratio between the T4 and T3 and expecting it to be somewhere um, in, in a bracket of sort of three to one. So if, for example, your T4 is 15, you would um, hope for your T3 to be about five. So three to one. Okay. And that gives us good information in terms of um, how is this person converting this um, storage form into the active form. Um, so that's definitely something that we, we're looking at. And in terms of the sort of autoimmunity itself, what we test for um, is the, the antibodies. And um, in terms of the antibodies, normally you would do it when the other numbers of so the, the TSH, the T3, T4 would be out of whack. So there would be something um, abnormal there. And then you would organize the antibodies if you had a, a clinical suspicion of, for example, Hashimoto's thyroiditis. So in terms of Hashimoto's, the two antibodies that we um, normally um, test for is the um, TPO, the thyroid peroxidase antibody, and the thyroid peroxidase is the sort of central enzyme in the thyroid hormone production. And that's, that's a specific um, antibody for, for Hashimoto's. Although all the other um, autoimmune conditions can have um, race um, TPO as well, but um, in a normal you expect it in a sort of smaller, um, smaller number. So even somebody with um, type 1 diabetes or multiple sclerosis um, or rheumatoid arthritis can have a TP, um, positive TPO antibodies. And then you've got your thyroglobulin um, antibodies, which are less, um, less specific in terms of the um, Hashimoto's, but often they are present in about 50-60% of people with um, Hashimoto's, you have those. And then if you're having the overactive picture um, in terms of the TSIH, T3 and T4, you may be looking at Graves' disease, which is the overactive thyroid, and then you're looking at the TSI, which is the thyroid-stimulating immunoglobulin, which sort of mimics the, the pituitary hormone, the TSIH, and stimulates the thyroid into producing more, more antibodies. So in a sort of general picture, the classical form, what you expect, and life is always, you know, often not um, sort of black and white, but what you normally see in an underactive um, thyroid picture is you've got the race TSH, so the race um, the stimulating hormone that's trying really hard to say to the thyroid, do its job. And then you've got a low T3 and T4 
Um, so that's your classical picture. Mm-hmm. Now, in terms of the Hashimoto's, you may have um, different results at the different um, stages of your journey. So when you think about when you first have a healthy thyroid gland and then the body start, starting to producing the antibodies and the, the, the white cells that are attacking the, the, the thyroid gland, this normal gland is being under attack. It's actually often uh, releasing more of the hormones into the bloodstream and that could be seen as a sort of even overactive, um, overactive stage. And then often you get a period when it sort of all normalizes because it sort of balances itself out, followed by a period of the thyroid being so damaged by those antibodies that is no longer able to produce um, enough of the hormones. And then we see that as an under, um, underactive stage. So in theory, you know, you could be somewhere in that sort of normal range and your antibodies could be there, could be brewing, and that could be happening for years before you even get to the level of your thyroid. Yeah, before there's been enough damage to the thyroid gland. But then that's the last test that most doctors will test for and won't often test them until everything else is already destroyed. Exactly right, exactly right. So in a way, I feel that I was quite lucky in a way that I've tested this before it got to the level of the, yeah. the the damage, but then again, I'm not particularly in tune with my body. I certainly wasn't then. So for me to get this sort of, you know, this strange feeling that made me sort of persevere and look into it more was um, was a good thing that ha- that happened. But um, look, I do I do test for antibodies for people who. Um, I feel like there's something going on. I think the whole story, my personal story, just made me more vigilant in terms of, mm, mm. I wonder if this is the case. And especially if there's a family history and, and you know, the typical sort of symptoms then. Yeah, it seems to me to be almost in reverse. Like really the screening should be for the antibodies because that's what's causing the destruction. So if you can get that, and I know that this is because the mainstream medical doesn't believe there's anything you can do about the autoimmunity, that they don't do this. But it always seems to me that if there was general screening for the antibodies and you could pick that up first before there's the destruction to the gland and the the impact on the thyroid hormones, then that is preventative medicine. That's right. But, you know, I think the first thing, the number one reason for that is the cost, isn't it? So um, they've got to draw a line somewhere. Yeah, so that's when we're talking about, yeah, the the Australian Medicare covering the cost of that. But if someone can, and I often say to people, and maybe I'm not sure if I'm right in this, you tell me because I don't deal with Medicare, (laughs) is can you say, well, look, I understand that Medicare is not going to cover it, but I'm prepared to pay for that test. Yes, and I cannot see why a, a doctor would say no to that because yeah. you know the pressure is of them in terms of yeah. So the Medicare is not going to come after the doctor for saying you're order, ordering all these unnecessary tests. Exactly yeah. right. So that's what I would um, suggest that that's a possible that's a possibility, and that's how, for example, naturopaths organize the the tests, and yeah. you know it's um, it's being organized as a as a as a private test. So. Yeah, I would certainly not refuse anyone um, to to organise that. Yeah, yeah. And so I think maybe some of that, I think that's the awareness, you know, for, you know, if you're listening to this and you're having trouble getting the test, just know that really I think wherever you are in the world, you can organise your own tests. You're not just limited by what, say, in Australia Medicare will cover or in, in the States maybe your health insurance will cover. You can actually be empowered patient and 
offer to pay, and obviously that comes out of your own pocket, but I think that's money well spent. No, absolutely. Potentially, I think if you've got a if you've got a you know high enough suspicion, then 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 absolutely. Then, yeah. but then the question is, you know, are you going to end up having to interpret your own results because you? Well, I know that is the problem, isn't it? I know I understand that. That is the problem. Yeah. Are you going to be told? Well, nothing you can do about it anyway. What are you going to do with this? Yeah. Well, and maybe if you're an empowered patient that is knows to ask for those tests then maybe you're already looking in other places to know that perhaps there are things you can do. I don't know, but you're right. That is a tricky one. I mean, this is something I often see online is people asking, right, here's my blood tests. What do I make of this? (laughs) How do I interpret my own blood tests? And obviously you've gone through those tests and what's normal and what's optimal. And I know it's far more complex than that because you've got all the interactions of what's high and what's low and whatever else is going on in other blood tests. But is there, and look, and I guess I would say as a disclaimer, there's nothing like having a doctor who knows what they're doing <laughs> interpret your thyroid blood test. So this is not about you being able to read your, and interpret your blood tests in the absence of proper medical advice. But I think it is important for a patient to be able to look at their own blood tests and know what's going on and to see trends perhaps over, over time. So Have you got some tips for how the patient is to look at their blood test results and make sense of them? Okay, so I'm presuming that everything was done. So you've got your TSH, your T3, your T4 and your anti- Yeah, so let's just, yeah, the the full five-hour panel is done. Actually, one other question is, do you normally test for reverse T3? I don't often test for it because... I feel like addressing the um, stress, which is the treatment for it as such, is um, is a part of the treatment anyway. It's good to maybe test it at the beginning just to see, look, this is what, what the situation is. This is where, where it's going. It's going to reverse T3 rather than your active um, T3. So it, it can be helpful. But again, I guess the, the, the cost um, element of it is um, could be quite restrictive. So knowing that the patient will have to cover, I uh, talk about it. Um, I guess not everybody would choose to 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 have mm-hmm. it tested. But um, yes, that certainly could be a um, part of the, the the full assessment. And so answering your questions, the the first thing to do, you know, if we're suspecting the Hashimoto thyroiditis, the first thing you look at: does this person have race antibodies? And that would be your um, answer, I guess, to whether they have or don't have the autoimmune thyroid condition. Not taking into account those sort of borderline cases when you've got this, you know, one, one not both, but one one type of the antibodies very slightly raised. Um, I wouldn't necessarily say, right, you, you definitely have it. You probably would be a situation when you would, I would monitor you. and, and, and... Okay, so if both of them are around that kind of cutoff, you wouldn't automatically assume Hashimoto's you might think let's just retest in six 12 months I'm taking I'm thinking more um in terms of for example if the thyroglobulin antibodies are raised and the TPO is perfectly normal and the TPO being more specific for for Hashimoto's I would still uh-huh. make the person aware and I would still definitely focus on the lifestyle changes and I would want to have those rechecked just to see uh, which way we're going with um with those so, so that would be that would be my first thing. Um, have a look. Do you have those antibodies? I certainly wouldn't be rechecking antibodies every time I check. Um, I, I monitor somebody's thyroid function test, but it's good to have um, have them checked 
um, from time to time just to see which way they are going. And again, we know that they can fluctuate, but generally if if you see that they massively high and then you do um, your lifestyle changes and you, you check them again and they and they lower, you know you are on the on the right track. I mean, interestingly for me, again, going back to my little ache thing, when I reduced the antibodies by more than a half, that ache disappeared and has never come back since. So, oh, wow. Um, so to me, that was a clear sign of um, of inflammation of, of, yeah. of, of my thyroid um, gland itself. So definitely antibodies. Yeah, and you could see that that effort that you're putting in, because let's be real, it is effort <laughs> uh, to make those changes had its impact. And I think that's really important because we, when we are making diet and lifestyle changes, it is hard work. And so you want to know that it's working or that it's having an impact. And so that's where, as you say, getting them tested every now and again to see that trend is helpful. Absolutely. And 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 we know also that it doesn't happen overnight. So, you know, people, we want quick results and, you know, um, and it doesn't often happen that quick. But also, you know, whatever changes you're going to um, apply, you want to make sure that they are sustainable long term because... You know, that's ideally is what your life is going to be uh, like from from now on. So I think anything too drastic, too restrictive, will probably not um, mm-hmm. not not work well long term. Mm. So then, in terms of going back to the results, have a look at what your TSH is doing, and you, ideally you want it somewhere between one and two. If you're not pregnant and if you're not a child. Uh, you want it somewhere between one and two, and that's an optimal range. And then you have a look at your T4 and T3. See if the ratio is somewhere between uh, three to one. So that gives you a good idea whether all the storage form is being converted into the active form because your body actually wants the active form to be able to do the thyroid's job on the cellular level. Um, so that's sort of um, the basics of it, what you would um, uh, want to look at so if your t4 is too high and well higher in relation to a lower t3 that's going to impact the ratio it might mean then you're not converting it into the t3 so for example a good um, a good scenario to sort of think about for example if somebody is lacking iodine um and iodine obviously is a is a frequent topic in terms of you know um thyroid conditions because one of the basic nutrients uh, required to produce the thyroid hormones. But if you imagine the situation that your um, body is lacking, when your thyroid is lacking um, the iodine, what it will try to do, it will try to um, push the production into the uh, of the active form hormone, so the T3, rather than wasting the resources on the storage form, which is the T4. So you will see relatively more of the T3 compared to the T4. Um, uh-huh. So that's an adaptive mechanism. It's not going to serve you forever because eventually, you know, when you don't have that sort of building block, it's, it, you know, you're going to run out of the, those resources. But it tells me, for example, that, you know, there could be deficiency in iodine uh, when the T3 is relatively higher compared to T3. So, you know, our bodies are clever and they, they're trying to sort of do the, the best in the in the circumstances and that's an example of it. 
Or, for example, if somebody's lacking zinc or selenium, which are uh, crucial microelements in terms of converting the the storage form into the active form, if you're lacking those, you're not going to see that um, conversion necessary. And and that will give give us as well a bit of a clue in terms of the nutritional status um, of the patient. So when you're looking at the blood test, that's one of the things you're looking for. What's sitting behind that? Like why why is the T3 higher or why is the T4 higher or what else might be this person deficient in or system in their body not working properly? Even, for example, if somebody's TSH, um, so the brain hormone, is on the lower end and so that means that the thyroid doesn't need that much stimulation. It's supposed to do its job perfectly. And then the person is presenting with weight gain, with low energy. We know that there is something going on in there. So you just have to look at it in, the, in a bit more detail. It just, it's, it's not congruent with how the, the patient presents. So it gives us a lot of information just looking at, um, you know, where are you in this normal range, you know, which, which part of the spectrum are you on? Mm. And I know sometimes when you on that TSH around four and, you know, things sort of looking kind of just on the edge, <laughs> when do you look at medication or not? Like, do you have a view about that? Well, so, you know, there's the guidelines and then there's real life, isn't it? So in terms of the, the guidelines, <laughs> if the TSH is above 10, okay. Above 10? Yes, then you treat. Um, because of the um, increased mortality, pretty much, and and increased risk of heart failure and cardiovascular disease. Now, the range between 4 and 10 is where you have to take other other considerations um, into equation if if you're looking at treating the the patient. So if a person's TSH is more than 4, and they, for example, already have the risk factors um, for um, cardiovascular disease or heart failure, or they have the antibodies and they're symptomatic, then, you, then you're allowed to treat them. Um, so that's the, that's the sort of guidelines. And then you have this separate category of ladies who are trying to conceive or are pregnant, and then the official guidelines actually do... Um, say that we should be treating them in a much um, narrower... So if the TSH is more than 2.5, for example, um, and especially if they have antibodies, they end up being treated with tyroxine. So that's the that's the guidelines. And then I guess you have to sort of apply the layer of, well, how is the patient actually presenting and how, they, how are they feeling, you know? So if somebody's TSH is a, a, above that level of you know, fall and they, you know, they have all the classical symptoms, then you you certainly have a discussion with them in terms of treatment. And in terms of somebody being on tyroxine and you monitoring the levels and you deciding whether they in a sort of optimal range, um, then you want that TSH probably not much higher than 2.5. And that's, again, that's in the guidelines. So that's what we're doing. So, so where the optimal ranges come into that then? Because there's a big difference between two and eight. <laughs> that's right. I guess, um, oh, yes, massively, isn't it? Um, so yeah. <laughs> what they're saying, basically, you know, if, you're, if your TSH is above 10, even if you're not symptomatic, I would 
struggle to find somebody whose TSH is above 10 is not symptomatic, yeah. then you treat them. Um, then you treat them anyway. I guess for me, the optimal range is just having that sort of alert, that little sort of red flag that hmm, what's going on in there, you know, in terms of the nutrition, in terms of what they supply their body with in terms of the sort of building block side of things, what else is going on? And, mm-hmm. and obviously how they present, how they feel. You wouldn't necessarily start somebody who's, you know, uh, is not a, a pregnant or trying to conceive lady with a TSH of, you know, 2.5 and no symptoms whatsoever and no antibodies. You wouldn't oh, yeah, go yeah. that way. But you would definitely monitor and try to address the other issues, the, the nutritional side of things, definitely. I guess that's where... It's individualized medicine, isn't it? It's going to depend on you and your doctor and how you feel. And hopefully your doctor understands a bit more than just four and under, you'll be fine. Exactly yeah. right. Exactly right. Because it seems to me that's where some of the, the gray area is, is when you're quite symptomatic, but on the borderline and do you go down the medication route or not? And maybe if do you sort of recommend maybe making some of those dietary changes and the lifestyle changes first and see if that has an impact? Definitely. And maybe assessing for the other sort of um, deficiencies as well, you know, just seeing what is your selenium, what is your zinc doing, for example. Uh Uh-huh. What's your vitamin D doing? That's um, sort of uh, definitely uh, in terms of autoimmune conditions, we know that the vitamin D is sort of important uh, massively as well. I mean, you have the protocols now for people with uh, multiple sclerosis that include high doses of vitamin D to um, to assist in their recovery. So those things around it that will affect your thyroid um, health because it, it's not in a vacuum, isn't it? There's so many different things. And, you know, you're looking at gut health, you're looking at um, your female hormones, for example. You know, as as females, we've got more predisposition to underactive um, thyroid because of uh, our hormones, and especially when there is a hormonal imbalance. You need progesterone, for example, to to help that um, conversion. But then maybe going back to the being assessed. So, for example, somebody is on on thyroxine and... um, they may be not feeling very well, and then they're having the, the levels checked, and the TSH looks okay, and the um, T4 is okay in a normal range. T3 maybe doesn't necessarily get checked, and that's where there is a potential problem because on paper it can, it, it, it can look fine, but if you're not if you're not converting that T4, which is your which is your thyroxine that you that you're given into this active form, then you, you can still feel just exactly how you felt before in terms of the the underactive thyroid um, symptoms. So um, that's an important thing to address and, and and look at because often people would say, well, it's, your thyroid is fine. It's not your thyroid. It must be something else. So that comes back to making sure that all the tests are done and but if the TSH and the T4 looks okay then the doctor generally won't test the T3 which could be the missing link yes and you're allowed to you you, you are if you are on the thyroxine you are allowed to have your T3 checked people just don't know don't don't sort of see the importance of it um yeah to see the sort of full picture um mm. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess that's good. You know, as a patient, if you're looking at you and you're only being tested for your TSH and your T4 and they're both pretty good, but you're still feeling bad, then go to your doctor and ask to add the T3 on your next test to see if you are converting it. 
Exactly right. Exactly right. Because then you may have to look at uh, other options. So one thing is obviously the nutritional side of things, but also another thing is, well, do you actually need the, the T3 um, um, on top of your T4 to be able to have, um, you know, all the action of the, the thyroid hormones into your, uh, on your, on your basic sort of cellular level. T3 itself is a bit of a controversial subject because, um, the T3, which is available on, pre- on prescription, is a very short-lived hormone. So it only acts for sort of, you would have to dose it every three, four hours to, to, to have the benefit of it. And, um, and it would be sort of rapidly going up and down. So it's not really an answer. So um, you should maybe consider um, a slow-release T3 as an addition to your T4 if you're one of those people who is not really converting the T4 to T3 and your T3 mm-hmm. levels are still yeah. very low. Yeah. yeah, so Anna, I think like what you've gone through there is it is really helpful because the reality is all of this is complex <laughs> and there's no, I mean, I've just finished reading a book called The Thyroid Debacle. It's a new book. I, I'm interviewing Dr. Eric Bolkavage tomorrow on, for the podcast. I've interviewed him before. The book is really all about how the medical system doesn't really deal with thyroid health well. You know, and it's a it's a reasonably heavy, meaty book, and it's made it just reinforces to me just how complex this is. And you're trying to in a general practitioner appointment, so whether you're the doctor or you're the patient, the typical appointment's what, 10 minutes? So how do you possibly, even if as and you are now a like a very well informed, extra qualified general practitioner with a thyroid health problem, but even with all of that, how in a ten minute appointment do you communicate all of this to your thyroid clients? I mean, that's an impossible task. Well, I run late. <laughs> you run late, okay? <laughs> yeah. On a on a regular basis, because I think that's um, you know it's important to go through um, those basics, you know, so people have understanding of what's actually going on on that first appointment. Um, So I actually sort of print out the result and I go through them with the patient uh, because I think it's, if somebody just rattles numbers at you without sort of showing it to you sort of black and white, it's very difficult to... um, to understand what's being said sometimes. And then you can, you know, you can take this home. I put little scribbles on it as well. Um, so, so it's easier to go back to it. And I always say, look, talk to me again about this. And we often recheck, um, you know, especially if we, I don't know, starting somebody on a tyroxin, you know, you would recheck the, the levels in four to six weeks anyway. So, um, so that's another occasion to sort of add another um, mm-hmm. layer to it. But yes, I run late, I admit, <laughs> because it does take time to, to have a proper understanding of what's going on. And, you know, there's those, those sort of basic things that you have to do. So, you know, as I mentioned before, testing for celiac, having somebody's ultrasound of the thyroid on, you know, you, you have to have that first one just to see because we, as a Hashimoto patients, you're more prone to nodules, um, for example. So just having that baseline. So we know where we are at this level and, and just even assessing for things like the, the actual thyroid damage on that first scan. So gives us a bit of an idea of, well, well how long has this process been going on? You know, is it, is your thyroid little and, little and shriveled or is it just, you know, maybe even enlarged and, and inflamed and, you know, with all this extra blood circulating uh, through. So it gives people a bit of an idea of, you know, what, what's actually going on. So they don't feel like the body's totally just betrayed them. And it's like this alien thing uh, that, 
that it just does its own thing and we have no understanding. So I think just give, give, gives people more of an idea of what they're dealing with and what they're up against. Um, so, yeah. yeah, I take my time. I do. Yeah. Well, and that's, and I'm sure your client, your patients appreciate that because it, it's a lot to get your head around. And I think in the end, as patients, probably regardless of whatever health issue you've got, you, you do really have to go and do your own reading and research on top of that. You can't possibly understand. I mean, I've spent thousands of hours reading and learning about thyroid health. And I have, you know, I have a, a doctor who's, is a holistic doctor. The appointments are 30 minutes. I mean, I pay a lot of money for it, but they're 30 minute appointments. And even in that, like that just then springboards me off to like go and do other reading and research. And I think if you're listening, we have to be realistic about what we can expect from our medical appointments as well, even with well-informed you know, doctors. Well, I think for us, from from my end, is just really listen, you know, and catch those little cues that people give you because, you know, it's all in there and just being just that little bit extra vigilant and um, so to have more awareness of, um, you know, could this be a thyroid condition? Mm-hmm. Um, it, does, it does help. And, you know, I guess because of my personal experience, I, I feel like I am more sort of aware of it and I'm just sort of looking out for it more. So, Anna, if people wanted to get in touch with you or learn more from you, how can they go about doing that? Okay, so I've just recently started a little Facebook um, group dedicated to um, lifestyle changes for Hashimoto's thyroiditis. We are tiny at the moment, uh, but um, it would be great to have more um, people in, just sort of sharing their experiences. Um, I will be providing a lot of, um, I'm I'm hoping, value um, in terms of um, lifestyle changes that would be helpful uh, for people. And I'm hoping that others will sort of interact and and share their experience um, in terms of what's helpful because there is just so much information out there and not everything is um, helpful or or correct. And I also, because I obviously have a limited number of hours in a day and, you know, I'm in Western Australia, not everybody would have a chance to come and and, and see me in a sort of face-to-face consultation, I decided to do a fairly basic sort of um, essential um, knowledge-based uh, course uh, in terms of lifestyle um, changes in Hashimoto's thyroiditis. So I've put it on a platform called mastermind.com, um, just sort of seeing if anybody would find it um, helpful. I've actually got a little uh, promotion going on at the moment, just over 30% cheaper than it normally would be. And I would say it probably is more um, directed at people who are maybe just starting on this journey and just uh-huh. looking for some uh, clarification in terms of what is it, what's, what is this Hashimoto's thyroiditis and what are the simple steps I can do myself to, um, to address um, the symptoms and to, to feel better long term. Well, I'll make sure I put the link to that you know, in the show notes for this episode. So if you're listening and you're interested in that course and you just want to know the basics because it is important to know the basics and like you said I think when we spoke initially you know you were talking to a client who's like I don't even know where my thyroid is and we we have a lot of assumed knowledge I was talking to a man the other a few weeks ago friend and he said do I even have a thyroid because it is more women you know that have thyroid problems he didn't even know really that he had a thyroid men had thyroids and so I think that basic information is super helpful. I think 
so. And, uh, you know, sometimes, again, you know, from the ex- like a day-to-day experience, you see people who are on tyroxine, have been on it for years, and you tell them that they've got autoimmune thyroid condition and they just look at you and think, you know, nobody ever mentioned. There is your, yeah, there yeah. Is your tablets, we can check your levels and that's about it. There's nothing else you can do about it. So that's an interesting, and that's, you know, where I really want to, you know, help people. And this, you know, I, I try my absolute best on my um, day-to-day basis, but you, you know, you sort of limit it as to how many people you can, you can approach with this and, and change their lives into, in a positive way. So that they don't have to go through this alone and, and have somebody to sort of help them and guide them and definitely give them hope because it, in my opinion, there's plenty you can do to address those issues and to, to make yourself. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think that's, I will, I will put a link to your group and to the course. Uh, so people can access that if they would like more. And obviously if you're in Western Australia, look up uh, Anna and go see a book in as a patient if you'd like to, <laughs> if you're in Perth. So look, thank you so much. And I really appreciate your time and your expertise and just your gentle spirit and your kindness uh, really appreciate that. Thank you so so much, Annabelle. It's a it's a real pleasure. It's the first one for me, so I appreciate uh, you know if I'm, I'm a bit rusty and a bit scattered brain. <laughs> well, you are no longer a podcast virgin. <laughs> That's one to celebrate. Thank you so much for having me. That's my pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Thyroid. I would love it if you would subscribe to the podcast and share it with others that you know with thyroid problems. Let's get the message out there. If you'd like to connect with me further, the best place to do that is via my website, annabellebateman.com. From there, you'll be able to join my Facebook group, book a strategy session with me, download my freebie um, and access any show notes for this episode. Thank you so much and I'll see you next time. Bye. Have you read Let's Talk Thyroid yet? That is the book that I put out last year. It is all about positive and practical thyroid help for the new thyroid patient uh, or for the thyroid patient that is new to the idea that there's anything other than taking your medication that you can do for your thyroid health. Grab your copy from Amazon or from my website, letstalkthyroid.com or grab a copy for a friend who is struggling with their thyroid health and just needs some really accessible, bite-sized, practical and positive information that's going to give you hope for your thyroid future.